everybody, and welcome to episode 27 of the Pro Series Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Doman. This episode, I chat with furniture designer and interior designer, Gary Hutton. Gary Hutton gives me a little bit about his background, how he got into the business, how he goes about making his furniture, and a little bit about his other creative hobbies that he's into. Make sure you check out Gary Hutton Designs. And again, make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the Pro Series Podcast on wherever you listen to podcasts. But now, it's time to start episode 27 with Gary Hutton. Hello. Hey, Gary. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Are we all set up here? We're perfect. Great. Very cool background. That's what you're talking about on the phone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, my books. All design-related? Pretty much. Really? Yeah. Okay. Very cool. Pretty much. There's 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 a few up there that are uh, about fashion, and then there's a few cookbooks in the corner. But <laughs> yeah. So are you? You said fashion. Are you? You do everything in design related, or is it no. just mostly interiors or furniture? Interiors and furniture primarily. Yeah. Gotcha. I'm just, I'm just interested in those things. Yeah. I mean, I feel like all creative minds kind of just want to explore on everything creative. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this, you know, uh, Couture Couture Week was like a week ago. And um, I went down this YouTube rabbit hole watching, you know, watching the shows. And, uh, oh, man, you know, when you have a minute, do the Scaparelli Haute Couture show for uh, Spring 22 it, I mean, none of the clothes are wearable. Okay, we start <laughs> from that premise. You know, nobody nobody can wear those things. But as as a creative process, they're just mind boggling. These things. Just, see, I don't know really anything about fashion. What is I've seen, but I've seen like snippets of fashion shows and stuff. What is with those type of designs that if they're not really like really you could use them in real life what what do they are they mainly just made for the show itself absolutely yeah oh really yeah there were well there are only 200 women in the entire world that buy those clothes and the clothing is made specifically for them so they go to the shows and they're invitation only you cannot get in um if you don't have an invitation. And then if one of the women who comes decides they want something, they make an appointment, they go to the salon and they say, well, I like this, but I want you to change that. Or I don't want this oh, part okay. on it. And then the garment is made specifically for them. And there was a really interesting show um, on the BBC about eight years ago okay. that was specifically about that. And um, eight years ago, the reporter who, it, it took her two years to work her way into the shows and to get any of those women to even speak to her. And um, eight years ago, they were, she was like, well, how much does this cost? And then the wanted to really say but she talked to someone and they were said well you know a blouse 
about 10,000, uh, a coat, 15 or 20. But if you want a ball gown or something, you know, a really fancy dress with a lot of embroidery or beadwork, that could be up to $150,000, $200,000. What? Yeah. You can buy a house for that around where I am. <laughs> well, yeah, we, that's not even a down payment here. But, oh, but um, yeah, it's, it's another world. Yeah. And like this, the Scaparelli show was Elsa Scaparelli was uh, she was a designer in the in the 20s through the 50s. Okay. And she was great friends with Salvador Dali. Okay. And so a lot of her clothing in those days had surrealist themes. So she would take crazy like melting clocks and make jewelry out of them you know the you know it was like and so this guy who is the head designer now for scaparelli took the concept that she always worked with which is that surrealist thing and just took it to another place just crazy weird beautiful um one of the handbags, the woman came out and it was like John the Baptist's severed head in gold <laughs> with a handle on the top. <laughs> crazy, crazy, weird, wonderful. Um, I tell you, it's, I think the show, the whole show was only 17 minutes. Um, the video really? of it, yeah, it goes like that. And you know, those, those if you, if you think, because those were all really extraordinary outfits so just the garments alone in that show were probably four million dollars you know bigger brands like dior and chanel and those those they use that as a loss leader to boost up the image of their perfume and you know scarves and things that most you know most people can buy if they really wanted to most people <laughs> yeah because you know like you like, you know uh, uh, one can go to a department store and buy mm -hmm. chanel number five you know um and so they use the haute couture shows as a way to elevate that brand gotcha very interesting you see i didn't even think i was going to learn anything about fashion on this call <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome but I mean, I feel like, like I said, creative people, creative minded people dabble in a little bit of everything in the creative world. I think yeah, even if you're not into fashion or design or anything, that stuff interests, it's, interests all of us. Yeah. And it just keeps us going. The other, the other show that you need to, that you really should watch is it's a, the Valentino show from last fall okay. and it is one of the most as the the color that the guy used and the combination of colors was just really inspiring you know i don't have a client in the world that would want that much color in their house but but uh it was it was the, the coloration was just incredible and he took over two um, gigantic boat slips in the boat yard, the ship repair yards in Venice. Okay. And built two gigantic white floating runways. So you could see, you know, uh, 
That's insane. And some of those garments were wearable. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Have you ever thought about you doing some interior design work? Have you ever thought of doing the design of sets of fashion shows? No, actually, I haven't ever thought of that. I feel like that's something that you'd be a really cool side project. It would be, it would, well, you know, some of these things are really fun. And the video, the videography of it all was really quite am- amazing. The, yeah. the Valentino spring summer that just happened was shot in a, a big fancy building, probably in Paris. Mm-hmm. You know, and the camera was at the top of like a three story staircase. And so you were seeing the models their heads going down the, you know, and then they were coming back up and going down at the same time. And then they would walk through a salon with a bunch of people. Um, Wow. uh, Really interesting. There's a, there's a, a a movie called Dior and I that mm, maybe five years old. And it was when Raf Simmons took on the head of Dior and it followed him from his first day at work up for a year up until his first show. Wow. And then what that show was and how they went about it. And um, it, was, it was really fascinating because he is Dutch and he doesn't speak French. And so the women in the couture house didn't have much respect for him at the beginning and he had a really hard time because they didn't if he didn't speak french they felt that he couldn't possibly know anything Mm -hmm. and you got to see how these women work and and men and what what went into some of those things it is just like mind-boggling hundreds of hours one bead at a time being sewn on these garments just crazy couldn't imagine it could you not know, imagine I, that. I try to, you know, like I try to take some of that uh, information and use it wherever I can. I, yeah. I did a project a few years ago for uh, Sandra Jordan, and she has a line of alpaca textiles. Okay. You were familiar with Sandra Jordan alpaca, but she's a really interesting character. Uh, and she is originally from Peru. Okay. And, and was, you know, uh, a child of diplomats. And so she lived in Paris. She lived in, you know, all, and ended up settling here in California and marrying into the Jordan winery family in Healdsburg. And, you know, husband, I don't know if they divorced or he died, whatever, a long time ago. And she decided that she needed to give back to her country. And so she started um, this business importing, well, manufacturing and importing Prima Alpaca uh, textiles for interior design. Wow. And so, uh, and it's lovely because like 10% of all of her sales go towards building sustainable housing for the herders because they're still nomadic. And so, She's built this series of completely isolated stone huts that these people can come. They're solar powered. They can, wow. you know, cook. They could use the things, and then they just leave when they go. And the next people can come and take care of that. That's so cool. And so, I, because her um, 
this one pattern that she does is just it's plain, but she has like 45 colors. And so we were doing this guest house up at her ranch in the wine country. So every pan, there's a series of French doors. Every panel is three different colors. So it starts when you come in and cool grays and violets, and then it runs the entire color spectrum until you get to the west side of the house where it's red and yellow and orange. Wow. It's on my website. It looks, it's good. It's a good thing. Um, I remember. So how did you start out in the design like world? Have you always been interested in design since you were little? Oh, yeah. It, what really got me started, I built a lot of model cars when I was a kid. Okay. I love building model cars. You know, I won prizes and all that kind of, I've got actually trophies are sitting right here on the other side of my desk from like 1965. Um, and I was like really into spray painting and then doing fogging stuff on them and all. I still love cars, hot rods and classic cars, whatever, you know? Yeah. Um, and then, uh, you know, I went to uh, UC Davis uh, and cool. at that time, the art and I was an art major, and at the time, that was sort of this golden, magical moment where there were very few art majors, and uh, we had a, a selection of instructors that were just extraordinary. Um, Wayne Tebow was one of the. He just died about a month ago at 101. Wow. Yeah, he was um, part of the, uh, he was classified as part of the pop art movement with Andy Warhol and Lichtenstein and all of those. And his his paintings were just extraordinary. And, and he was he, one of your professors. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And Robert Arneson, who died a number of years ago, but he was one of the pioneers of taking ceramics from craft into the world of art. Um, and so it was like, you know, you had 10 kids in your class and, you know, it was really, it was magic. It really was. We all understood that there was something really extraordinary about that moment. Absolutely. So did but, you go uh, for general design or is it for interior no, design? No, I was, I was fine art. I was studying to be a fine sculptor. Art. Okay. And then when I graduated and I found out I couldn't get a job as a sculptor, <laughs> um, I went to uh, CCA here in San Francisco and got a design degree there. In gotcha. Do you do any sculpting anymore? Um, no, that really, I, I, I get those jollies by doing furniture design. Gotcha. So, so okay, so that's how you kind of got into the furniture design world. Yeah, uh, yeah, a little bit. I was started my design practice and um, it seemed that there was always something that I needed that I couldn't find. And you know, this was, it, this is the dark ages before internet or anything like that. So, you know, if it wasn't at the design center, it didn't exist. You know, you had to really work at finding things. So made a lot of stuff and San Francisco was a great place in those days because there were just craftsmen that could do anything here. And that sort of started at a friend of mine, uh, was decided to open his own showroom and he was like you know that little table that you made for so and so i think i think I sh you should make that 
and I'll sell it. And that's kind of how it started. They started like one table and now there's, I don't know, 45 pieces in the collection, something like that. So do you ever duplicate a piece of furniture that you've made? Oh, yeah. You know, you but the, um, I have, uh, you know, this series of pieces, but I would say 75% of them that we are, are customized one way or another either mm-hmm. a size or a finish or something. So, you know, we, we do what the basic designs and we modify them to what the designer needs for that product, for that project. Cool. Do you, um, all wood, is it all wood designs? Oh, no, I do almost nothing in wood. It, oh, really? Stainless steel or bronze. Um, and then we have some upholstery as well. Wow. So do you have a fabrication shop that does all this for you? I have shops that I have worked with since the beginning. Okay. So the bronze casting is all done at a foundry in Berkeley, just across the bay. And um, the fabricated metal pieces are done um, by a shop in Los Angeles. What made you want to do it in brass and wood? I've talk to many furniture makers and they've always done just wood because it's very um, simple, I guess, to manipulate and build. What brought you to make doing metals? Well, the casting, well, metal casting, I I did that at UC Davis. So, you know, I was familiar with that. And, you know, you take some clay or some wax and you make what you want and then you make a mold of it and then you can do multiples. Um, and the fabrication, um, you know, you want some really hard, flat planes or something like that. And you buy sheet, you know, we use, uh, basically quarter inch, uh, stainless steel plate or a quarter inch bronze plate. Wow. Um, Are you customizing more and more furniture for, um, customers or is it basically you make custom furniture from your own creations and sell those creations uh no we we have uh, specific designs and then we modify those for designers so gotcha yeah somebody want there's like a series that we call the a series and it's a really straightforward um simple geometric forms uh that kind of came about after I uh, made a trip to Marfa, Texas back in 2000 and was just mesmerized by Donald Judd and the work that he did there. So I came back and kind of sketched up a whole bunch of things. And I would say really with those, a good 75, 80% are done, you know, custom sizes or, Mm -hmm different patinas or uh, you know, whatever a designer needs. Yeah. I- I've asked this to designers a lot um, of interior design, furniture design. Do you still use pen and paper for your sketches? Or are you just- yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. I, I do too. I- I've never, I can't get my thinking into a rendering program. I-, I have to do the rendering program last. Well, I have somebody else do that. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way to do it. That's the way to do it. <laughs> Is that how the the um, shops go off? Is any of this actually three D? 
like three three D printed or anything? Um, no, but we're about to. Um, okay. the, the foundry we're, we're working on um, a, a custom kitchen island for a big project in Rin, and uh, the kitchen the i the kitchen island base will be cast bronze with a stone top and um we will make a scale model in clay they will scan it and then uh 3d print it in wax and then that will be cast in bronze wow that's cool so you've never done anything in 3d printing yet no not yet okay that's always fascinating me i have never done it but it's always fascinating fascinating me from that because i mean i've seen houses being built in 3d printers now yeah isn't that crazy it is i mean i just thought it like a no-brainer for furniture they're building a whole entire house (laughs) well you know there's there's so many interesting new ways of going about things i Mm -hmm. um had an employee for about three years i hired him right out of design school when i saw his uh, senior thesis and it was fabricating furniture out of fungus so he actually grew the furniture what yeah yeah there's a and this is big going on in holland they've been doing um fungus bricks to build houses and okay. they they get these bricks they put them together, wet them down and then they grow together and become one solid mass and you know, you could you plaster over them, and um, then at the end of the thing, it's compostable. <laughs> That's actually pretty cool. Isn't that great? So I saw the you know he did a, a bench and a chair and a lamp all out of fungus, and I was like, this guy is so out, outside the box. I need to have him around. So. We had we had a really terrific three year working relationship. It was great. I would never think to make furniture out of fungus. No, me either. But I was like, okay, I can, you know. And then so I was talking. I was like, Ben, you know, what, what, tell me about this as a material. He said, well, there's a couple of drawbacks. You know, he said, think of it kind of like styrofoam. It doesn't have any tensile strength. It has great compression strength. But tinsel, you know, like you can break a corner off of a piece of styrofoam. Mm Kind of like that. And then he said, well, and then there's the odor. (laughs) Yeah. That goes away after a while. (laughs) (laughs) Or you just get used to it. Yeah. yeah. How about when you sit on it, does it like, isn't it wet? No, no. No? It it dries. You know, it's like, it, it, you you grow this stuff and then you stop watering it and it stops growing and it dries out. Wow. I'm just mind Crazy, blown. Huh? I'm mind blown right now. <laughs> <laughs> what, what is your, through all your years of furniture design, what is your absolute favorite project you've ever done? Oh, it's that's, probably so hard. That's really hard to say. I, I want to say like though the one I'm working on right now, but which is great. This kitchen island thing um, yeah. is going to be amazing. But, you know, I've, I've had this one client for 41 years now. 
And I was thinking about it last night as I was writing up some notes to make sure I didn't make a fool of myself talking to you. And, um, you know, she, she has been an extraordinary client and we've done uh, eight, 10 projects for her over the course of this. And these have all been really big, like long-term. Most of the projects have been like four or five years in, in length. Um, we finished a, a, a lovely house for her in Los Angeles uh, a few years back that's in my, uh, in my book, Art House. Um, yes, yeah, so let's talk about your book. Right here. Art House, okay. And um, it's, she is a really astounding person. She is a serious contemporary art collector um, and was listed as one of the 200 most important art collectors in the world um, for like 17 years running um, by Art News Magazine. And she's very serious about it and her, her collection is really quite extraordinary. Uh, so she's really kind of open to, you know, new things, crazy ideas. Um, in the LA house, in the media room, she wanted that room to be completely acoustically isolated from the rest of the house. So that when the grandkids came over, they could watch movies or play video games and not disturb her, close the door, and so the room, um, nothing in that room really touches the rest of the house. So all the walls are isolated from all of the others with rubber fastenings, the floor, so there's no vibration that can transfer through the floor. And in order to ensure that, I was going to, you know, it started out, I was like, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll upholster the walls and that'll that'd be nice. But the acoustical engineers were like, no, not good enough. So we did a bunch of research and we found this company in New York that does custom made brushes, like scrub brushes. Okay. Um, and they do them in panels. So we covered all of the walls in panels of custom made brushes. So the walls are about that thick. I mean, the brushes are about this thick. And it's not quite as good as all of the foam triangles that you see in recording studios. Yeah. But almost. It's just a step below that. But it probably looks nicer than this styrofoam or this foam panel. It's, <laughs> it's really cool. And do I have a sample close by? I don't I don't think I do. Um, but That's it's so cool. yeah, it, 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 you know, I love to explore oddball materials and to use things in in an unusual way um so that you know we did that in um in the uh in the media room we did uh she has a, a condominium at the four seasons here in san francisco and that was really more about conceptual art so and she was never gonna she's never even spent the night there you know so um she called me up one day and said sweetie i, I bought this wallpaper at christie's from an artist named robert gober and robert gober is a big he represented the united states at the venice biennale one year 
Dang. And the wallpaper uh, is, well, let me start by saying his work is all about the power of the banal. And there's really nothing more banal than vinyl wallpaper, right? I mean, eh. <laughs> so, but his paper uh, is called Sleepy Man, Hanging Man. And it's a drop match pattern, eight, like eight and a half by 11 drawings of uh, a blonde guy just from the shoulder up, head sleeping on a pillow. Okay. And the next, um, the next image is a black man who's been lynched hanging from an oak tree. And it's visceral stuff. And yeah, it really, wow. and she said, so I want to use this in the powder room. And I was like, okay, well, uh, the powder room has to be about confrontation then, you know, as a, as a concept. And there was only enough of the paper to do one wall. So what we did in that room was there's one wall and we put uh, a, a you know, the door into the powder room that opened against the paper. It's a glass door. Mm-hmm. And then we installed a window into the living room on the other side. So the powder room is completely transparent. And you can see right through it. And the other three walls are stainless steel. Okay. Ceiling. And... Uh, uh, we put in a, a, a stainless steel prison toilet and um, this Italian sink that's just a white box that sticks out of the wall. And when you go in, you th- well, there's no way you can use it because people can look right through it, right? Okay. And so when you latch the door, the glass goes opaque and it's that uh, plasma glass. Okay. Yeah, I've seen that. And so, yeah, so it goes opaque, but then what happens is the lights come up brighter and there's a puff of kind of cold air. So you've like lost all control of your surroundings. And it's it's really quite an extraordinary experience. Whoa, dang. I think if you take anything from this call, I think you need to make a documentary on your experiences, and then also the casting process of making a furniture piece. I think that would be so cool to see. Oh, well, think about that. Yeah. Yeah. See if anybody Um, in the San Francisco area that could develop some documentaries for you. I'm sure there would be. (laughs) Just have to put it out there, you know? Absolutely. Um, I want to finish off on some of your passions. Um, I know a lot of designers have other passions, um, hobbies or whatever you want to call it. What are some of your passions that you have? Um, well, I wrote those down. Uh, Prepared. Prepared. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Uh, well, we talked a little bit about haute couture. That's, okay. that's I, you know, I just think that the creative process around that and you know is it's like in a way it's like what we do you you color and texture and how do you put those things together in an in an interesting way or a new way mm-hmm. so that's that's one and it's like valentino scaparelli and Givenchy are the ones that really well the companies have the money so they can do these extravagant productions 
And uh, there, about four, three, four years ago, there was a Givenchy, uh, and it was the first year that this new woman had taken over the, um, the Couture house. And it was in a formal garden in Paris, you know, with the trimmed trees and the gravel paths. And the runway was elevated about three feet off of the ground and it was entirely mirrored. So the models came out and they were walking on the clouds in the sky. It was That's cool. magic. It was just absolutely magical. That's you know, really cool. a simple thing, but so effective. Oh yeah. That reminds me, there was a designer here in Pittsburgh a couple years ago, made mirrored toe kick on an island. So it made like the the island look like it was floating up in the air. Oh, that's a great idea. Yeah. Mixing of these materials can make a huge difference in the design. It's all about the details. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, another one of my passions is, is jewelry. And I really don't have any. <laughs> uh, what, but Joel, are you making it or just... No researching it looking at it yeah and gotcha. you know seeing what's being done and, and knowing and um there's uh david webb was an american jeweler he was really uh big in the 60s and 70s um jackie kennedy wore his enamel gold bangle bracelets and okay. his his work it was just crazy you know like extravagant use of big stones and bright colors and you know he, wow. he was really quite an amazing uh, quite an, an amazing talent and then there's an american that moved to paris and the jewelry is it's j-a-r which are his initials but um he is, by all reputation, a complete curmudgeon and just, um, you know, his store is open by appointment only and getting an appointment is really hard. And I, it might be an apocryphal story, but the uh, story goes that Anna Wintour from Vogue magazine showed up at his place and he lives above the shop and like without an appointment, knocked on the door and he was like so incensed he dumped a pot of water on her. <laughs> go away <laughs> and yeah I, he's nuts um, I think I might even have do I have a jar book here I must have taken it home but uh, he, he was yeah and the, he, would, he would do things like um really, really tiny pavade stones. And there was a pair of earrings that he did were raspberries. And they were the size of real raspberries. Mm -hmm. And each lobe on the raspberry was a faceted garnet, you know, that hung on little bronze leaves. It just like, it did another pair of earrings. One was a carrot and the other one was a radish. <laughs> wow. You know, just... There's, well, my my the saying that I made up that expresses I think what I'm talking about is that there's only two kinds of people in the world: the ones that love sparkly things, and the ones that won't admit it. 
<laughs> hey, I mean, I think I like sparkly things, just not if it doesn't have glitter on it. I'm not above glitter, no. but I have it. I have I have a, a painting by a local artist, and all she uses is glitter. Oh man, no paint. No, no. She she draws on a panel with pencil, and she was saying, you know, there's only like four companies in the world that make glitter uh-huh. and each of them makes it out of a different material and each one of them does different colors and sizes so they all react differently and so she mixes the glitter together as if it was paint and then a brush stroke of glue and then okay and so the piece that i have is well yeah it's like eight and a half by 11 maybe a little bigger and it's quite ex- extraordinary. It, it's uh, a, a man who has fallen off the mast of a sailing ship and he's in the ocean at night drowning. So you only see his head and everything, the rest of it's black, but you see the turning water, you see it, extraordinary. Crazy, does she seal it? Cause I feel like my worst part about glitter, it just gets everywhere. I don't know exactly how she puts it on, but I've had this piece uh, three, three, four years. Okay. And I'm clumsy and I knock it off the wall every once in a while and nothing ever seems to come off. Okay. I feel yeah, like I, those Christmas cards, the wrapping paper with the glitter. No, that is, I banned that stuff from my house. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, the only way to get rid of it is like burn down your house. Yeah, it's true. It's true. <laughs> Three years later, you're finding it, you know, like under the coffee table. Oh, yeah. I'm still finding the Christmas decoration. That's the only time I have glitter as, <laughs> on Christmas decorations. And I'm still finding it on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Well, um, Gary- Elsa Peretti was the other uh, other jewelry designer that, that just really, oh, she had just such an incredible vision of, of things and you know, her wild and crazy stories with Halston and all of that, you know, Studio 54 and all of that craziness in New York in those days. Wow. I don't think I've ever met anybody that's been this well-rounded in the design world. Oh. Like furniture, art, fashion, cars, all of that. That's crazy. It's, you know, I mean, it's really what i love yeah Yeah. and and sounds like it yeah um and then you know cooking and tabletop are sort of the other parts of me so i've um back in i i got started cooking back in college days because uc davis was in the middle of nowhere and you you were you were a, a half an hour away from sacramento which was nowhere and in and you know a good hour and a half from san francisco so, you know, we were like, it was the 70s. We were you know, smoked up and get the munchies. And so I got a lot, I got very popular when I figured out how to bake cakes and make brownies and cookies and things. <laughs> and so that just kind of developed and I, it's, 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 it's a hobby. And, yeah. you know, um, I really, and, and actually my very first, real interior design project was doing a small restaurant here in town okay and these people were uh 
really kind of ahead of the food world at the time. And everything, they only did organic things. They only used organic ingredients. And in 1978, that was pretty radical mm -hmm. and hard to find. Um, and everything was prepared in the French manner, but lightened up. So it it pre-staged uh, the Nouvelle Cuisine thing, which came along in the early 80s. Um, and so it was just a little lunch place on the second floor of this building that overlooked um, Union Square. And um, that, like started my career and the first project that i ever did got published in interior design magazine and crazy here we are. how did that come about how did you get into the interior design magazine well um the the restaurant was it was a was a huge hit with the the fancy ladies that lunch and then also sort of the design world people. So Charles Feaster, who was the head of interiors at Skidmore Owings and Merrill, was there once a week. Uh, mm. Orlando Diaz-Esqui, who just was uh, inducted into the uh, Interior Design Hall of Fame Emeritus, oh, wow. uh, he was there every week. So there was all the, the, so the design world, I was very lucky in that I got that kind of exposure mm -hmm. right off the bat. And um, people had said, well, you should, oh, well, one of the writers for Interior Design Magazine went there for lunch because she had heard from Charlie Feaster and um, Orlando that, you know, she needed to see this place. And she called me up and said, what are you doing about this? I was like, well, what should I do? And she was like, get a good photographer. So the, the owners of the restaurant were really great. And, and we hired um, Jaime Ardeles, uh, who at the time was the, the photographer. And he flew out from New York and took the pictures. And it was not, interior design 1979. Wow. Do you have that then, framed up in your house? Um, no, but I have a copy. Okay. <laughs> uh, and um, then I founded my firm in 1980. Are you so, so you have your own interior design firm, or is it just, okay? Yeah. Is that part of the furniture company as well? Yes. Okay. Do you have your own showroom in San Francisco? No, I'm, I'm represented at um, Hune, okay. which is a, a multi line showroom here. Um, Los Angeles at Thomas Lavin and in New York at Profiles and Seattle at uh, uh, Trammell Gagnier. So does that mean you're doing work all around the country? Well, I was, you know, on a, on a good year, we're shipping furniture all over the country. <laughs> wow. That's I mean, I've worked around the country. I've done, I've done work in, Texas, I've done work in Maine, I've done work in Oregon and Nevada. Um, it's, it's mostly local. But, okay. You know, I've got a, a project coming up in Los Angeles um, soon. Um, so. That's crazy. You know, 
it's yeah it is kind of crazy and you know it's, the other thing is like like in in relation to the cooking and and stuff it's like what what's on the table is really important to me and it's part of you know again that whole sculptural thing and background and like wow. i very recently acquired um a set of flatware by uh, a Los Angeles silversmith named Alan Adler. And he worked in the 50s, 60s, 70s. And when I was doing student apprenticeship uh, at Gump's, I would like walk by the silver department and go, oh, you know, one day. And, you know, it's, it's, it's just such a pleasure because it's all made by hand. And, you know, if you believe in, you know, the sort of Zen principles that the person who makes it puts part of themselves into that, you know, you, you, you kind of spiritually feel that this, someone put their heart and soul into that for you to use. So Absolutely. that's really important to me. Absolutely. Well, this has been awesome. Gary, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule um, to come on here. I want to make sure everybody follows you at Gary Hutton Design mm -hmm. and goes onto your website at www.garyhuttondesign.com. Um, and I hope we stay in touch. I hope you find someone to do this documentary because I want to see it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I'll see you on my end if I could help out on any, anything. Okay. This has been great fun, Eric. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Gary. You are so welcome. Thank you. And and just, uh, you know, shoot me an email when it's coming up. Absolutely, I will. Take care and um, keep in touch. Okay, Eric, thank you. Thank Bye. You. Bye.